When it comes to space games, nobody compares to Atari. Excuse me. Have you compared them to Intellivision? Intellivision? Sure, they've got great space games, like Intellivision Space Battle. I didn't know. And now there's Space Armada and the incredible Astro Smash. I didn't know. Here, compare for yourself. Intellivision Space Games from Mattel Electronics. Once you compare, you'll know. Welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Zach. And I'm Seth. And we're the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right. We are the Classic uh, Gaming Brothers. Uh, I think this is episode 140. 140. Wow. Yeah. Assuming it doesn't get tossed. <laughs> I just throw this episode out the window. I'm recording using the right mic, and I, I promise I won't save over an old episode. That's right. I've just meant, I meant the uh, the physical discs. Oh, yes, because we record everything <laughs> actually on mini discs. No, we have those big reel-to-reel tapes. Those are macro discs. They're discs when we throw them. Oh, yes. Yes, that is true. Uh, They're like we fris- play Frisbee. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Frisbees with the tape deck or whatever. A 140, though. That's uh, pretty impressive, right? I guess. It just continues to prove that we know how to count. Really does. Anyway, Seth, what have you been recently playing? Uh, So recently I've been playing a game called Hollow Knight, which was a very, very trendy, popular game back in 2017. I think it's still on people's, like, top list of games, especially people who like the Metroidvania-style games, which is when you combine Metroid and Castlevania and you make... Metrovania. So Hollow Knight is a Metrovania action adventure game and was developed and published by a company called Team Cherry. In it, you play as this insect-like knight and you have to explore the Hollow Nest, which is a fallen kingdom underneath the ground. So you're going through tunnels and caves and fighting tunnel and cave dwelling creatures with your little sword. I got Hollow Knight through Humble Bundle, but I activated Hollow Knight because I thought it would be a pretty fun game to play on my Steam Deck. And I was right. It is a pretty fun game. It's a pretty casual type game, doesn't take too much battery life, and I'm able to just kind of play it around when I have some downtime. I enjoy it, and I really enjoy the artwork in it. I think the artwork's really cool. I think the, the music and the is very atmospheric, and I just think it's a kind of a great pick-up-and-play type of casual, more casual style game, and it's pretty forgiving when it comes to if you die, you respawn on this bench, and then you can just like go back to where your spirit was i'm uh, about an hour in to the game so far and i'm looking forward to spending some more time with the game and playing more hours with it uh, because i understand that you unlock you unlock certain things as you go along in the game you get more powers and all sorts of fun stuff with the uh the little hollow knight who's who's a really uh cool looking mascot i really appreciate the art aesthetic i think i said that but already but i do appreciate the art of hollow knight so yeah so that is what i've been recently been playing is nice. hollow knight cool what about you sorry i was pointed at you but people can't see points no that's fine uh i've been recently playing just cause three aren't you always recently playing just cause in some form yes just cause three was a 2015 game developed by avalanche studios published by square enix and 
I think I did talk about this before, but a long time ago, like early in uh, Classic Gaming Brothers history. But uh, Just Cause 3 is uh, a game that I got for the PS4 and have been playing it because I started playing Just Cause 4 and I realized I didn't like it very much. So Mm. I wanted to go back to a game that I enjoyed, which is Just Cause 3. (laughs) Just Cause 4 is okay. It's not my favorite Just Cause game. And I've played 2, 3, and 4 so far now. What about 1? I own 1. I've just never played 1 but i own it maybe i'll go and play it but i feel like i'll be like severely disappointed because three adds so much to the game that like four takes away which is weird a lot of the stuff you get in three does not come to four are they gonna make a just cause five i hope they do i'm sure they're going to in in any case with just cause three it's it's a really good game it has a lot of elements i like for one thing you play as rico rodriguez who is one of my favorite characters next to kyle katarn but rico rodriguez is a uh he's a revolutionary who is tasked typically with taking down some dictator in a country that you go to usually by the cia but he also sometimes just does it for his own googles in just cause 3 you're actually going to rico's home country in medici which is a fictional mediterranean island that is under the dictatorship of general sebastiano de rivalo who is an authoritarian with a cult of personality where he has like statues of himself in every city giant posters with his face on it they have like propaganda trucks that drive around and also there's a radio station that will play and provide the news that de rivalo wants people to hear so like if you destroy a military base the radio station will queue up and it will be like it was decided that the government will be demolishing this base for mold issues that the base was having there's obviously some issues going on in this country and it's rico's job to liberate it and he does that by blowing everything up uh you destroy a lot of military assets so you go to like military bases and you just blow up everything and then you go to towns and you destroy things there but you destroy the things that are bad like the statues and the like propaganda trucks and the signs with de rivalo's face on it the game is a blast literally because all you're doing is just blowing things up the entire game you also get a grappling hook as you do in the other just cause games and this grappling hook let me tell you fantastic (laughs) you can latch things together and then you can like press a button and it will pull these things closer to each other which is very fun to do with helicopters because if you latch two helicopters together and then press the button to make them go toward each other usually it's not a good day for those helicopters you also have a wingsuit that you can use to glide everywhere and a parachute and like rico just has like infinite parachutes he's just able to like grapple parachute drop the parachute grapple again parachute drop the parachute grapple again parachute the game is very unrealistic but i love it i love every minute of it i will say that the game is very glitchy some glitches that i experienced just in this play was a car going from the ground and just was kind of just kind of levitating up into the air far away it was kind of like a rocket car it was just like it's just out of here another time in the title screen it's not a render it's like in game of rico leaning on a car the car did not spawn so Rico was just leaning nice. on nothing. Another fun glitch was I tethered a helicopter. The helicopter did a twirl through the air, untethered itself, and then left to be alone. It just like turned around and left. <laughs> it was like, I'm done. So those are just some of the minor glitches I've encountered. Nothing game breaking, but it's a pretty fun game. It's playable on the deck. So I think I'm going to install it. I highly recommend it. My problem so far with Just Cause 4 have been that like, it just takes away a lot of the speed that I get used to with Just Cause 3. There's kind of this like, you get into this motion of like grapple, parachute, and then wingsuit. And you can kind of like, while you're using your wingsuit, you can grapple onto things. You can throw yourself around. It's just very quick. 
where in just cause four you can still kind of do that but they like it just feels slower i don't know what it is but it just feels chunky and the destruction elements in just cause four don't feel as useful so in just cause three if you go to a military base you're literally given a list of things to destroy before that military base becomes yours so you have to like blow up the fuel canisters blow up the sam sites the surface to air missiles blow up this thing blow up this thing assassinate the general do this in just cause four so far i've been to like three or four bases every base i go to it's like go to this terminal hack the terminal leave and i'm like why can't i just blow everything up like i did before that seemed to be the method that works the best and it just kind of disappoints me that just cause four took a lot of the fun parts of just cause three and just got rid of them and kept the boring parts of just cause three and was like let's make the whole game this would you play a just cause three mod where rico rodriguez is replaced with sonic the hedgehog absolutely anyway today we're talking about a video game system that seth and i uh, collectively i don't believe have any memories of i know i don't have any childhood memories of this system but our father actually i believe has memories of it because i remember when i i owned an intellivision at one point just because i like buying old video game systems spoiler alert the episode's about the intellivision yes yes spoiler alert this is an intellivision episode uh, but i remember our, our dad saying that he remembers playing with the intellivision at some point Oh no, dad, write in and let us know. But I remember him looking at the controller and being like, I remember this. So, and we'll get into the Intellivision a bit more. Anyway, I don't think neither Seth and I have any memories of the Intellivision, but it's a fun system to talk about. You own one. I did own one. So you do have memories of it. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. I actually ended up selling my Intellivision because uh, when I left college, I kind of went through this phase of getting rid of a bunch of stuff. And I realized I never played my Intellivision. I just kind of had it. So it just kind of collected dust. And the Intellivision is is not a small video game system it's bulky i don't know the best way to describe it in terms of size it's like the the width of a microwave (laughs) like it's it's long that's its problem so it just doesn't like fit nicely anywhere so uh at one point i just i just had to sell it um but they're rather inexpensive machines and if i get one in the future i'll probably get a model two which are smaller but in any case yeah seth i kind of spoke for you but do you have any memories of the intellivision i don't i mean i think i think our listeners have gotten to the point by this time in the podcast that they they realize that i don't really have a lot of memories mostly because i forget a lot of things anyway let's talk about the intellivision and it's actually it was made by mattel which is fun because they're a toy company and i like toy companies in the 1970s in the early 1980s uh, atari was the company that dominated the gaming market we've talked about this in our atari episode and they had really strong releases especially with the atari 2600 they really kind of revolutionized the whole gaming home console market however they weren't alone in the market We've talked about such things such as the Coleco Vision done by Coleco or the Connecticut Leather Company. We also talked about the Magnavox Odyssey. They were also looking at Bally, who had an Astrocade. RCA created the Studio 2, and Mattel was looking at making the Intellivision. Now, the production of the system for the Intellivision began as far back as 1977, around the same time that Atari officially released the VCS, later known as the 2600. Now, Mattel, primarily known as a toy company at the time, 
and is still acknowledged as a toy company. <laughs> they were looking to develop a game console that would have better graphics than the Atari and a gimmick that would keep the players coming back. They viewed the Atari console as maybe a little drab with its one joystick and one button combination. Mattel wasn't unfamiliar with electronic games since they had developed a small line of handheld games like their Auto Race handheld in 1976 and a series of sports title like football in 1977 yeah the mattel football for anyone who's a fan of the movie tron is the console that you see flynn using when you first meet him also for anyone that's a fan of guardians of the galaxy volume 2 is the like tracker device that star lord has at the very beginning of the movie um, he has a modified mattel football now to prepare for building a game console mattel had to first find a way to make this game console physically so they began negotiating with national semiconductor for them to provide a simple chipset at the time it was suggested by a technology consulting firm that they use general instrument instead of national semiconductor um so mattel decided to not listen to that suggestion and chose national <laughs> and they drafted up a plan for national to develop the chipset however national was ultimately unable to deliver what they had promised so mattel would go and request that gi develop the chipset and said now once the chipset was fully approved mattel put together a team that designed the controllers and the rest of the hardware in 1978 david rolf of aph technological consulting was able to create an onboard executive control system that would allow people to program the first few games for the machine of which fun fact the people who programmed these games were a group of caltech summer student employees now mattel introduced the intellivision officially in 1979 at the Las Vegas Computer Electronic Show, or CES. The original design was presented as a home computer with a keyboard add-on. Originally, the main system and the keyboard were going to be individually priced at $165. So the main computer was going to be $165, the main system, the keyboard, an additional $165, which adjusted for today's inflation, $807 a piece. Which, yeah, today's inflation is a little different than it might have been in 2021, but that's still, that's still a lot of money. <laughs> like, like $165 in 1977 was a was a substantial chunk of change. Now later at the Chicago CES, they actually had to revise their prices to $250 for the main system and $250 for the keyboard add-on, which again, adjusting for today's inflation is over $1,200. Uh, this thing was not going to be cheap. Now, Mattel was able to work with distributors like Sylvania and Sears to market their own branded versions of the system, and they were beginning to deliver consoles to Gottschalk department stores and JCPenney. The system officially hit the shelves nationwide by mid-1980 with a pack-in game called Las Vegas Poker and Blackjack, and at the time of release, they actually had 10 cartridges available for the system, uh, those 10 games programmed by Caltech summer student employees. Now, the system would retail for the suggested price of $275 or $988 with uh, inflation in today's money on launch in 1980. Along with the Mattel version of the system, there was also the Sylvania branded machine, the Sears Super Video Arcade variant, which our father may or may not have owned, and the Radio Shack Tandy Vision 1. Because nothing says early 80s like Sears, Radio Shack, and Sylvania. <laughs> The trifecta. The trifecta of 
modern technology. These systems all functioned. I I think we also had a Sylvania TV. We did have a Sylvania TV, yeah. We had televisions for all of the game companies that made game systems. These systems all functioned identically to a standard Mattel in television. However, some lacked the Mattel Electronics logo when the game was booted, which I don't think is really a, a big loss, except to Mattel. The machine itself ran on a GICP 1610 CPU and had 1K of RAM. This made it a bit beefier than the Atari 2600, which only had 120 bytes of RAM. The Intellivision also had 4K of ROM. RAM, just so for everyone, is random access memory, and ROM is read-only memory, which... Uh, the ROM contained the executive control sy- system software called Exec, which allowed the code to be reused and could mean a 4K cartridge could become an 8K game. I mean, so it's it was actually a pretty ingenious idea. The games could be very simple because essentially half the game code would be part of the Exec software. So all you had to do was plug in a cartridge and it would turn these small games into actually a lot larger games than, than the Atari had to offer. Um, so it was pretty cool it's kind of an ingenious way to use the rom and kind of boost your game's uh capabilities and you had to do that at that time right i mean you have to really think outside the box to get the most out of your hardware but it also probably led to a little more uh learning curve when you were developing for the Intellivision, since you had to remember to take in consideration that there was some extra ROM available. Yeah, right. The controller itself was incredibly distinct, and instead of a joystick, it used a directional disc, and instead of one button, it had a numpad. Games would come out with overlays to describe what these buttons would actually do. Now, before Christmas of 1980, there were 19 cartridges that were produced, and more on the way. Many were being developed by APH Technological Consultants. However, as the system was selling well, Mattel decided to begin developing software in-house. And in order to do this, they formed their own software development team and began hiring programmers. Some of the early programmers that were hired were Mike Minkoff, Rich Levine, John Soul, Don DeGlow, and their manager, Gabriel Baum. To make sure their programmers weren't poached by Atari, Mattel hid their identities and work locations, keeping a secret within the company itself. Games on the Intellivision vary. At first, there were a lot of sports titles. So you had some titles like Major League Baseball and Boxing. Uh, You also had some arcade titles that were put in there and some action titles like Sea Battle and Snafu. Uh, Mattel also expanded into adventure titles, such as releasing Advanced Dungeons & Dragons in 1982, uh, which was kind of a maze adventure game of sorts where you travel through misty mountains to uh, find lost treasure and defeat monsters and stuff. Third-party developers also started working to put out television games. Activision, which was founded by disgruntled Atari employees, brought games like Pitfall, River Raid, and Stampede to the system. Coleco, who was directly competing with Atari and Mattel, released versions of Donkey Kong and Donkey Kong Jr. on the Intellivision. And even Atari released some titles on the Intellivision, like Defender or Pac-Man. Yeah, I think at this time, companies were just starting to realize the money potential that could come with having a video game system and not only having a video game system but also video games so they were like yeah get our my video games on your system because i can get more sales yeah exactly but back then competitions between companies were nasty 
Like, if you think nowadays, or even the days of, like, Nintendo and Sega feuding, if you thought that was bad, Coleco intentionally made bad versions of Donkey Kong and Donkey Kong Jr. for the Atari and Intellivision so that they can say their version was superior. Yeah, that's 100% something that I was just thinking that they were going to do, is that they would go out and just make bad versions of Intellivision yeah, games and yeah. sell them, and then you would get it and be like, oh, you know, this would really work better on a Coleco or an Atari or an Intellivision. Also, some of these game producers may not have even asked permission to make games for the Intellivision. It's the time like where companies were just like, I'm going to make an Atari game. They were like, we're not going to ask Atari to make it. We're just going to make an Atari game. To kind of correct myself, I, I referred to these as third-party developers, but that term really didn't exist back then. There was no right. such thing as a third-party developer because these companies didn't have licensing agreements. Uh, it wasn't until Nintendo came along that we started getting what was officially third-party developers with their licensing agreements. Right, and, and Nintendo did so by in putting out the lockout chip. And that is how a lot of these companies at the time made it so people couldn't develop games for their system by secreting away how the game system was made and secreting away developers so that you couldn't take them from them because they would know how to develop for the system so you can just go in and offer them 20% more than what they were making and you can go make games on that system now. Now beyond the games Intellivision also of course released peripherals because everyone had to release peripherals back then. One of their peripherals was the Intellivoice which was a voice modulator that functioned with only four games. This allowed these games to make use of synthesized voices uh, which quote unquote added to the gameplay experience. Sure it did. <laughs> I had an Intel voice voice modulator with my Intellivision. I had a copy of uh, B-17 Bomber, which was a game that used it. And the most it did was it had a, a voice that went B-17 Bomber, which <laughs> fans of the AVGN might re recognize that because he... Uh, he played that sound a lot. Another thing that they released was the Entertainment Computer System, which was a peripheral that would turn the Intellivision into a home computer. So you might remember when they launched the system, or before they launched the system, back at CES, they were saying that this thing was going to be a computer. It was going right. to have a keyboard. Because that's what makes a computer a computer. <laughs> it didn't launch with a keyboard or any basic software. The Entertainment Computer System came out later, and it really came out because Mattel was being threatened by the Federal trade commission on accusations of false advertising because mattel kept advertising the system with the keyboard component but it was not available to the market so the ecs came out and it not only came out with a typing keyboard but it came out with a musical keyboard because back then people made music with computers and stuff i mean they still do today but that was a popular thing for like early programming but part of me really hopes that mattel was like grumbling and was like they want a keyboard they're gonna get two and they're gonna be nine hundred dollars a piece <laughs> yeah now, um, the ECS did have some cartridges that were exclusive to it in the sense that uh, it had some basic software. Technically, you could run it on a system without the keyboard component. You just couldn't do anything with it. Because basic requires typing. So how did the Intellivision do? Mattel wasn't Atari's first competitor, as we talked about Coleco, Magnavox, and so on and so forth. But they may have been the strongest competitor. In a 1982 SEC filing by Mattel, it is reported that they had around 20% of the video game market. The rise of new developers for Intellivision like Coleco and Activision meant that the Intellivision library would keep on growing, albeit with possibly bad games, but it was growing nonetheless. Right. It's estimated that around 3 million units sold between 1980 
1983, which is awesome. It really did well when it came out for, for selling and hitting the ground running. And in 1983, the market crashed. And so did the sales of the Intellivision. 1983 was also when the price of home computers, like the Commodore 64, dropped dramatically. And they started coming out with, uh, I think Commodore clones started coming yeah. out eventually. Yeah. The home computer market started becoming more like the home computer market it is today. And in the spring of 1983, Mattel Electronics stopped hiring new staff. They did release a new Intellivision, the Intellivision 2, aptly named. It was a compact, price-reduced model of the machine. The Intellivision 2 sold for $150, or about $440 in today's money. In June of 1983, Mattel Electronics showed off some of their new products, though no one was impressed or really cared because the market had crashed, and there was no money to be had with this new fangled. Mattel thing. The price of the Intellivision 2 was lower to $69 or $205 in today's money. And at that point in time, they discontinued pretty much their their stock and they walked away and Mattel Electronics officially stopped producing hardware. And in October of 1983, Mattel's losses had exceeded $280 million for the year. So they laid off one third of their programming staff. Another third was gone in November and the rest were laid off in January of 19. Mattel officially sold the Intellivision business in February of 1984 for 20 million dollars. The Intellivision name didn't die with Mattel's sale. It was actually purchased by Terence Valesky, who is the former Mattel Electronics Senior Vice President of Marketing. Valesky had hoped that the video game market would rebound in a way that would make the Intellivision brand a sound investment, and he formed a company called INTV Corporation with some other investors. As there was still a large stock of unsold Intellivision consoles, INTV was able to rebrand and produce their own systems labeled the INTV System 3, which uh, looks more like the original Model 1 Intellivision, just with some new colors slightly rebranded. INTV Corp continued to produce Intellivision games and ultimately published 21 cartridges before they were forced to discontinue their Intellivision in 1990 due to issues they'd encountered with licensing from Nintendo and Sega. A year prior, 1989, INTV produced the Tudor Vision alongside World Book Encyclopedia, which was a heavily, heavily modified Intellivision. The Tudor Vision featured an updated ROM that could play games specific to the Tudor Vision. The Tudor Vision was never officially released, however, as INTV got into a lawsuit with uh, World Book, who produced the World Book Encyclopedia. And in 1990, INTV would go on to file for bankruptcy and they would go to shut down in 1991. Oddly enough, despite the Tudor Vision never selling, there are some Intellivision systems that were put to market that had Tudor Vision hardware inside of them. The exact number of these special Intellivision systems is unknown. Now, in terms of the legacy, the brand Intellivision did not die with INTV Corp. Intellivision can't die, appears. It, it always is around in some form. It has gone through some substantial changes, though. In 1997, former Intellivision programmers Keith Robinson and Stephen Roney purchased the rights to the name of, of Intellivision and the games of the system. They formed a company called Intellivision Productions and began releasing Intellivision games on Windows, Mac, and various game systems using an emulator. This line of releases were called Intellivision 
Intellivision Lives! Exclamation point, and Intellivision Rocks. In 2003, the Intellivision 25 and Intellivision 15 plug-and-play systems, which uh, the number is, is to uh, infer the amount of games that were on these plug-and-plays, were released by Technosource with approval from the Intellivision Productions team. These were bundled with a collection of Intellivision games, but they were not emulated. These were actually ports that were made for NES compatible hardware. And there is speculation that the work was actually all done by a Chinese unlicensed game developer called NiceCode. In 2014, LA-based company At Games, spelled AT not with the at symbol, secured the license to release a mini Intellivision called the Intellivision Flashback. This system was sold at various retail outlets, such as Dollar General, and original Intellivision games were unmodified and ran through emulation. The only games that were modified were the Advanced Dungeon Dragons games, which had to be renamed to Crown of Kings and Minotaur, since At Games did not have the AD&D license, nor were they intending on purchasing it, or trying to get it. Uh, in May of 2018, the Intellivision brand was then acquired by Tommy Telerico, who had worked in the games industry and he created music for games like Aladdin, Cool Spot, and The Seventh Guest. All fun games I never thought were connected. <laughs> Telerico uh, would then go on to rebrand the company as Intellivision Entertainment and made himself president and CEO, as you do. Now in 2018, Intellivision Entertainment announced that the Intellivision Amico, a new system that is reportedly going to feature revamped Intellivision titles, would get released. Telerico would then go step down as CEO. Earlier this year, uh, he is still the company president, and as of 2022, the Amico has yet to be released. But it's only been a couple of years since they announced it. Like four? Right. Without getting too much into depth with the Amico, it is kind of a controversial topic, to say the least. I'm not going to say anything about Intellivision uh, Entertainment, but let's just say there were some deadlines that they did not meet and has still not met. Uh, in any case, the Amico has not yet released as of the recording of this episode and is still available through pre-order through their website. How much is it for a pre-order? $290 for one controller, $340 if you want two controllers. Anyway, that's going to be our Intellivision episode. That is. Uh, we're going to go on to our Retro Rewind segment where we talk about old games that we assigned each other and whether or not they stand up. Yeah, it's like homework, but sometimes a little worse. It's decidedly always worse than homework. I think there's a situation where Zach and I have gotten into this rhythm where we just assign each other progressively worse games. Well, speaking of worse games, Seth provided me James <laughs> Pond Underwater Agent. James Pond Underwater Agent is a game produced by Millennium Interactive and published by Electronic Arts for the Sega Genesis and came out in 1990. I actually didn't think it was that bad of a game. I think Seth saw the name and kind of assumed it was a bad game. I was on a list. Yes. It's certainly not my favorite game for the Sega Genesis. I've certainly played better games, but it, it was not a game that I would say I hated. I've played games before that I've been like, I never want to play this game again. Uh, that was not this. James Pond Underwater Agent is very arcadey, which I like arcade games to an extent. Don't always like arcadey games like this. Uh, you basically have to like complete simple tasks and then exit the stage. Uh, so this could be like saving lobsters from lobster traps or making sure you're the fish 
don't get exposed to chemicals. And you do this by just like blowing bubbles and like kicking things and stuff and you get points. And the faster you do it, the more points you get. So it is very like arcadey. I could see it being speed run. I'm sure people have speed run this game uh, a lot, but yeah, it's okay. In the game, you play as James Pond, who is a, as the name implies, underwater agent. He is a fish and it's filled with James Bond references totally. Like each mission is named after a James Bond book or movie and the main villain is named Dr. Maybe. Homage to Dr. No. It's actually part of a series. I think there's two more for the Sega Genesis and there was uh, another one that was released like four or five years ago but like for iOS. Does the first game James Pond Underwater Agent hold up? I'm certainly not going to go looking for this game in the near future. However, if I find this game in a stack of games and I can get all of the games for three dollars, maybe I'll buy James Pond Underwater Agent just to have. I don't recommend going to find this one if you're looking for a Sega Genesis game to play. There are better Sega Genesis games to play, and I think some of the later James Pond games are even better. So James Pond Underwater Agent does not hold up. Uh, next week, Seth, I want you to play another great game, Bubsy. Bugsy. All right. So Zach assigned me the wonderful task of playing Captain Novelin, brought to you by Nova Nordisk. It was a 1992 educational platform video game that was developed by Sculptured Software, which was a secret subsidiary of Acclaim, and it was published by Rea Systems for the SNES. The game was sponsored and received funding by Nova Nordisk, who are the makers of Novalid brand insulin. And when the game was released, people were actually pretty positive about it since they were addressing something serious in a, a kid format. However, I played this game. It's not good. <laughs> You play as Captain Novelin, and you have to collect healthy food while avoiding giant unhealthy junk food. The issue that I have with the game is not the premise, nor the graphics, and not even the music. The issue I have is Captain Novelin's ability to jump. Captain Novelin is a very large sprite, and the enemies that he fights are also very large sprites. He either jumps straight up in the air like a like a freaking column or he does like a spiral jump forward at a very low level so either you jump really high but don't go anywhere or you go forward in a spiral the enemies will come at you either walking or they will jump there is no way that you could fight the enemies you have to avoid them because you're avoiding junk food however your jump is not really able to get over the enemies it's really bad and the timing is just rough and it's overall like that frustrated me a lot is that like I couldn't time my jumps right and the enemies just they just I don't know I think either Novalin's sprites too big or their sprites are too big or there's not enough of a jump regardless it's very hard to avoid junk food which I guess is a life lesson in its own itself there is however an enemy called the serial killer and his serial and that's great the game doesn't really hold up so I wouldn't say that it does hold up however this is a big however John Ratzenberger liked the game since it taught children how to manage their diabetes and John Ratzenberger is a cool guy and I like him so 10 out of 10 game uh it has John Ratzenberger's seal of approval so if, if you've ever always taken the advice of Cliff Clavin or 
Ham from Toy Story, then you know that this is a good game. However, if you're serious about playing Captain Ovalin, uh, don't. Just stop. Oh, before every level of Captain Ovalin, it uh, has you check your glucose. There's a bottle and it has like a strip and it has it, the strip has a color and you have to correspond the color to whatever color the glucose is to set your glucose for the level. I didn't realize the color at the end of the strip I had to match with the colors that were on the bottle and I was really confused and thought that I just had to randomly tell it what my glucose levels were and I don't check those regularly since I don't have diabetes so I didn't know what to put in for the numbers uh then I figured out that there was a color that was associated with it but it did give helpful advice on what to eat during the day if you did have diabetes so all right what am i playing next week seth next week i'm gonna have you play math rescue i need you to rescue some math all right i'm looking forward to playing it now if you want to get in touch with us because you want to tell us how much you love this episode you can email classicgamingbrothers at gmail.com you can also reach out to us via our social media we are available on facebook instagram and twitter our facebook and instagram are classic gaming brothers our twitter is cg brothers pod we have a website classicgamingbrothers.com you can reach out to us there or you can also listen to our episodes or you can complain to seth how that website has not been updated uh now i think that's everything i think i like lightning rounds that unless seth can think of anything else that i forgot to say don't play games like my brother and don't play games like my brother i've been seth and i've been zach and we've been the classic gaming brothers that's, that's right that's right that's right